Where are women in times of war? Women at War and its Aftermath is a new podcast where we explore the stories of women who fight and mobilize for what they believe in. What does it mean to be an agent in war or in peace? How might women's activism and involvement in politics take many forms? The first series focuses on stories of women in the Maoist People's War in Nepal. My name is Hanna Ketala and I'm a researcher based in London, originally from Finland. Hi, I'm Swastika Kosoju and I'm also currently based in London, working as a consultant in international development. I originally come from Nepal. In the first series, we meet the women of the Maoist People's War in Nepal. Hannah traveled to the region in 2013 to conduct her PhD research, and the stories she heard from women on the ground amazed, inspired, and puzzled her. Tales of activism and revolutionary politics, women risking lives to fight, and organizing movements from the margins of power. Hannah was left wondering about the role women play in war. What does it mean to be an agent in war or in peace? How might women's activism and involvement in politics take many forms? The women whose stories we feature are often seen as merely beneficiaries of various international peacebuilding efforts rather than as political actors or activists in their own right. But these women are ex-fighters who were foot soldiers in the Maoist army or women who are actively engaged in the collective struggle for justice for the victims of war. Due to inequalities, not only of gender, but also class, caste, ethnicity and region, these women's stories are usually not heard in international policy circles or in the corridors of power, be it in Nepal or elsewhere. We share their stories in their own words but we also offer a glimpse into how these stories emerge through a complex encounters involving power relations, negotiations, mistakes, feelings of frustration, anger, as well as sometimes joy. What role does the researcher play in generating stories and multiple readings of stories? We think that it is only through delving into the complexity of lived experiences and encounters that we can begin to shine a light on women at war. I felt that the voice of the men was louder until I actually started fighting for the rights of the victims and for justice. It was always the men that used to talk and the women would always just sit and listen. Since I have taken a leadership role and from the time I came, I have been able to motivate other women to speak up and not to be afraid of the men. In today's episode, we meet Ayushma, whose husband was disappeared by the police. She talks about what it means to be a female activist, a woman fighting for justice in a situation where she struggles to be taken seriously by a host of national and international actors. The Maoist revolutionary campaign in Nepal, the so-called People's War, was launched by the CPNM, Communist Party of Nepal, Maoist, in 1996. Directed against the government, it sought to overthrow over 200 years of rule by the Hindu monarchy and a political system that ignored the needs of the people. The key aim of the movement was to end discrimination based on class, caste, ethnicity, 
region, and indeed gender. At first, the movement was dismissed as a minor law and order problem by the government, and the international development actors in Nepal were slow to react. But the CPNM proved to be an incredibly successful in mobilizing young people from rural areas and people from marginalized caste and ethnic backgrounds. And for the first time in Nepal, women from the rural areas were joining the movement in masses and were at the forefront of demanding and bringing about change. A decade of armed conflict ensued during which 17,000 were killed and over 1,300 people disappeared. Finally, a peace agreement was signed between the CPNM and the government of Nepal in 2006. At the time of signing, the Maoists were holding roughly 70% of Nepal's countryside, and the movement had initiated profound changes in the society. The extent of these changes became clear in 2008, when Nepal elected a constituent assembly to draw a new constitution for the country. The assembly was the most representative elected body in Nepal's history, and in its first sitting, abolished the 240 years old monarchy and established a republic. There are several reasons why Nepal is such an interesting case for exploring stories of women at war. First, as a researcher, I wanted to understand what drives women in Nepal to take up arms, to mobilize others and to affect change. And not just any woman, the Maoist movement mobilized women from rural areas the poorest, most marginalized in society, in unprecedented ways. These women's lives were transformed by their involvement in the Maoist movement and the far-reaching responsibilities they took on, including taking up arms for the People's Liberation Army. Approximately 30 to 40 percent of the People's Liberation Army, PLA, were women, and a considerable number of women were in commanding positions. The second reason is that in Nepal, it has been the women who are at the forefront of mobilizing in the post-war context. They have been the leading force in demanding justice for the families whose loved ones were killed or disappeared during the war. The movement that the women themselves call the victim's struggle or the victim's fight continues today. It involves families from both sides of the conflict. The women activists who pursue this movement are often from marginalized backgrounds, as it was the poor rural populations and marginalized ethnic and caste groups who were disproportionately affected by enforced disappearances and extrajudicial killings. So what I wanted to understand is how is it possible to organize and sustain such a collective movement from the margins of power? But Hannah, why do a podcast and why now? Well, I wanted to learn a new way of engaging with the rich and complex stories that emerged when I conducted my PhD research, and podcasting seemed the perfect way to share them. When reading and rereading these stories and thinking about the encounters through which these stories emerged, I did struggle to communicate the nuance and complexity of it all. Like most PhD students, I hope, I struggled to find a language to write my thesis. Most of all, I wanted to find a way of writing that would not just conveniently hide the problems, doubts, disappointments, exhilarating moments, shyness, tiredness, anger and frustration that was all there when I met the women whose stories I wrote about. 
I really think that podcasting is a perfect way of trying to communicate some of these stories that are often hidden in written research. I had been in Nepal for a bit over a month, seeing some old friends and getting organized to travel from Kathmandu to the Southern Plains to conduct interviews. As I would soon realize, my timing for the fieldwork trips was not exactly perfect. In June, it is often over 40 degrees in the districts of Navalparasi, Banke and Pardia that I was visiting. I was traveling with Pramila, who had agreed to accompany me as a research assistant and translator. We got to know each other pretty quickly as we took long bus rides to reach our destinations. I have to say, I was so lucky to have Pramila with me and she proved to be incredible and extremely important to conducting the research. After a very long overnight bus ride to Banke, we got ready in the morning to meet with women who were members of a victims group active in the district. We had made contact with them through a human rights NGO that had a strong presence in the area. So we found ourselves sitting in a room in the NGO's small district office very early in the morning, but already suffering from the heat. The door opened and a woman stepped in, introducing herself as Ayushma. Before we had time to explain our purpose or the research project, she immediately announced that she was in the leadership of several groups in the district and had come there to see what our research was about. When the interview started, Ayushma powerfully told us exactly how she felt about situations like this where she had been interviewed before. म पहिला जेन्स भइदिएको भए यो तपाईहरु कहाँबाट आउनु भयो किन आउनु भयो यसपछि के गर्नुहुन्छ तपाईहरुले हामी त अब शान्ति सम्म इफ आउस म्यान देन आउड आक्स दिस क्वेशन एट द बिगिनिंग देयर आर अ लॉट अफ डिफरेंसेस बिटवीन म्यान एन्ड वुमन इफ आउस अ म्यान आउड आक्स फर्स्ट अबाउट वेयर यू केम फ्रम व्हाई आर यू हियर व्हाट इज गोइंग टु हैपन आफ्टर दिस व्हाट विल यू डू आफ्टर दिस ऑल दिस काइंड्स अफ क्वेश्चंस आउड आस्क इट हैज बीन 6 इयर्स आफ्टर द पीस एग्रीमेंट It has been 16 years we have been victims our wounds are getting bigger and bigger and then people like you have made us just like a toy the government has done that too but people who come from outside also have done that always questioning us always asking us it does not necessarily mean that we have not been able to get any success from this it has just become a cycle where they just come ask us questions and go at least two to three people every month mostly human rights ngos and other human rights activists go and it is also published in so many papers almost 100 to 150 papers but we do not go anywhere they just come to see us through human rights ngos and they just come and find us sometimes i feel like laughing i was immediately taken aback i tried to reassure her that i was just a student and my aim was to spend time gathering as much insight as possible from women like her to tell their stories and base the research in and around this. Ayushma seemed satisfied as she suddenly prompted us to begin. Ani aba tapai harule sodhnuhos. Aba ma banchu, feri lamo honcha. We should start with our questions because otherwise it would be very late. Ayushma's husband had been disappeared by the police on the pretext of being involved in a Maoist movement. With the husband's disappearance, her life was completely uprooted and she was left to look after her three children alone without an income. Gradually, she got involved in different groups and cooperatives 
directed at women who had been affected by conflict. These loose groups became a place to meet other women and share experiences, connections, and the links she had established to human rights NGOs that Ayushma and her friends started to build and sustain a collective movement. They were demanding to know the truth of what had happened to their loved ones. At the time Hannah met her, she had already been active in the movement for almost a decade, and she had announced on her arrival she had lots of responsibilities. She was an active woman, and she was a leader. I felt that the voice of the men was louder until I actually started fighting for the rights of the victims and for justice. It was always the men that used to talk and the women would always just sit and listen. Since I have taken a leadership role and from the time I came, I have been able to motivate other women to speak up and not to be afraid of the men. In the fight for justice, I have been introduced with so many people and have been able to build good relations with the chief district officer, the police, other organizations, that even if someone goes there saying Miss Aisma has sent them, then they are attended well. This is what I have experienced, and I share this experience with my friends and tell them that we should show them what women are capable of doing. As the interview continued, Ayusma shared more about what it took for her to get her work done. What was particularly striking to me was her explanation about how she and other people in the group had developed different ways to approach meetings with government officials as well as with people from outside, including researchers. Now, if someone just walks into my office and asks for an interview, then this is not the way. Who will give the interview like that? We would just walk out. Who cares? It does not affect us in any way. So this is also a lot about how we can convince other people and how they convince us. We should be able to explain to them that we have come because of so-and-so reasons. Sometimes we have to show them our good personality and at times we also need to cry. It all depends on the situation. We need to be smart enough to make them understand and get our work done. We met Ayushma again and you will hear her stories and in-depth reflections also in episodes two and three. But what really struck me in our first meeting was how Ayushma shifted the terms of our interaction. Meaning at first, I was suddenly very conscious about acting like the outsider she had mentioned, wasting her time or even stealing stories. And second, I was puzzled by how she explicitly pointed out that this meeting was part of her work, not mine, as I might have thought, but hers. But what was the work that Aishma was doing? As I came to understand, this work was about advocating for herself, perhaps even more importantly, advocating for the other victims. And you will hear more about what this victim's work, as many of the women called it, entails in episode two. What we wanted to share with you here is that meeting people like me, researchers, INGO workers, and so on, was a crucial part of doing this victim's work. So I felt that all the women I met put a strong emphasis on being capable of interacting with outsiders and even more broadly on being capable of speaking. And in some occasions, the women would ask us afterwards, how well did I speak? 
And to me, this shows that the women we interviewed had a certain way of telling their stories and they knew what they were doing. They told the stories they wanted others to hear. And it was through these stories that they were advocating for themselves and for others. And I think this is important because although we can't narrate the life stories of these women as a whole, or somehow magically understand what experiencing war means to them, what we can offer is glimpses to what it means to them to engage with war. And in this case with Ayusma, to become active, to be an active woman and to do the victim's work. And I think that's exactly why we're trying to tell two simultaneous stories throughout all the coming episodes. The stories the women shared and the stories of doing research. You could think about the reflections on the research encounters as an awkward yet illuminating backstory, not only as the background about the women who shared their stories, but about meeting and what sparked the stories. Who was there? How were these encounters embodied? Where was the story going and where was it not going? The extracts have been transcribed and translated from the original audio recording of these interviews. They are read out by people who have a connection with Nepal and with these stories. We do not use any of the original audio recordings of the interviews in the podcast. The reason for this choice is twofold. First, having someone else to read out the extracts, not the person originally speaking, means that the level of anonymity remains the same as when these extracts appear in a written form, for example, in a journal article. Second, we think presenting the interviews this way has important value. We think it makes it more explicit that there is no claim to directly capture someone's voice here, to communicate it as it is. Instead, there are several layers of interpretation going on, layers that I strongly believe are always there in some form. Thanks for that, Swastika. That clarifies it. So I wanted to say a little more also about what is to come. What kind of episodes are we featuring? So in the next two episodes, we delve deeper into the stories of women who are engaged in the victim's struggle. So how have these women built a collective movement? And what might the community of victims look like? Is this a political movement? And what are the contestations between established NGOs and international actors and the women active in the movement? And are there perhaps spaces for solidarity? And then from episode four onwards, we shift to a little bit different direction. We explore the stories of women who fought in the People's Liberation Army. Who are these women who fought in the PLA? How did women become involved in the Maoist movement? And what was the life of a PLA fighter like? We also hear about what happens after the armed struggle is no longer ongoing. While some women have found a way to parliamentary politics, others seem to have withdrawn from political involvement. Or have they? Through the women's complex stories, we explore what is at stake when women appear to withdraw from political and collective mobilization. Is this merely return to what was before, or perhaps a beginning of a new kinds of politics? This is Women at War and its Aftermath, a podcast about the untold stories of women who fight and mobilize for what they believe in. The podcast is co-hosted by Swastika Kazaju and Hannah Ketteler, and co-produced and co-edited with Lizzie Ellen and Aisha Khan. 
This podcast series was made possible by funding from the Economic and Social Science Research Council and King's College London. Thank you so much for listening. Please rate and review us on your preferred podcast provider. It really helps us reach more listeners with our inspiring stories of women at war.